what I think has to be done in ethics training is not so much talking about ethics and talking about values and philosophy. It's basic psychology is transmitting that message that under certain circumstances, I could be the next bad apple, even though I'm a good person. And what are these forces that drive me and, and my organization into that direction? How can I see the red flags early on? And how can I not become someone who pushes others as a leader into that kind of high-pressure situation? Welcome to the Leading Transformational Change Podcast. Our passion is to help you lead and build heart-healthy organizations with a culture of purpose, trust, and integrity. I'm your host, Tobias Lewison, and I'm the co-founder of Heart Management. First off, I want to warn our listeners that this episode discusses suicides and suicide attempts. When I first read some of Professor Guido Palazzo's research on the France telecom scandal, I couldn't believe what I was reading. How could a large, well-regarded European company train thousands of managers to use tactics with a clear intent of making life miserable for tens of thousands of people in the organization and get them to leave? Something that ultimately led to a tragic suicide wave at the company. And it all happened under the guise of popular management euphemisms and change management language. Yet, as Guido explains in our conversation, we are all vulnerable to ethical tunnel vision. Guido Palazzo is an author and professor of business ethics at HEC in Lausanne with a PhD in philosophy, has spent decades researching how we become blind to unethical behavior. I was so happy about an opportunity to sit down and talk to Guido. We talk about philosophy, what to make of some of the changes the world is experiencing, why he is still hopeful in the midst of everything. And of course, we talk about ethical tunnel vision and what leaders and professionals can do to protect against ethical blindness. I'm sure that you will enjoy this conversation with Guido Palazzo. Guido, it's really a privilege to have you on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're a source of inspiration and knowledge for so many people that I meet in the ethics and compliance field. Could you share a bit of your personal story? What led you to become passionate about business ethics? Well, I studied management when I was uh, much, much younger. And I had the opportunity to listen to some lectures in philosophy given by a philosopher in the, in the management department. And I realized that I found this much more interesting. And I moved into philosophy after I had finished my studies and then did a PhD in philosophy and Ethics, business ethics is somehow the, the interface between you know, these two domains in which I studied. So I ended up there, but at a time when this was still not really mainstream, so the late 1990s. So what is it that in it that kind of grabbed you in that sense and that has kind of kept you focusing on, on this area? And, and of course, as a person who, who, who follows you, I mean, I see that you're. it's something that that you seem not just, it's not just your work, but, but really seems to be really an important part of your passion. Maybe it's, it's 
because of my biography. I'm, I'm a child of the 1990s. So I grew up with this fall of the Berlin Wall as an, as, a, as an event that shaped me and my identity. So this hope in the 90s that now we will move into a better world, the relevance of, uh, of ethics, of, of creating a good system, being at the forefront of, of a lot of discussions in sociology and philosophy. And maybe this, this feeling of that time led me into, into this kind of direction. That's what I guess with the hindsight. Have we moved into a better world? I guess we are all a bit disappointed. I always show my students now uh, in these days um, a picture or two pictures and say, well, this is in a way the end of our positive enlightenment centuries of the Western narrative. So I show them the, the, the two pictures of the uh, Twin Towers collapsing and the uh, fall of the Kabul airport. So in a way, the idea that the Western way of life would be globalized, we would have a democratic, uh, liberal market economy everywhere in the world. And, uh, history would end, as, as uh, Francis Fukuyama wrote naively at that time. Uh, this has been a bit um, disconfirmed by those recent political events. So the global doubt that we have the answers, the West, that, that our values, our ethics are relevant um, for them as well. This doubt is creeping in now. On the other side, what we observe, and pretty much, I would say this is what brought me to the compliance discussion. So the discussion on values and ethics inside organizations is this big scandal that happened in 2007, 2008 in Europe, the Siemens scandal. Because I always say there's a time before and after Siemens when we talk about ethics and organizations. Because from that point on, organizations realized that it can become super expensive not to have an ethics program, not to live ethical values, to go down the drain with your organizational culture towards corruption and harassment and, and all kinds of, of illegal and immoral routines. Just thinking based on, on what you're sharing that I remember visiting a conference, don't remember the exact year, but it's a number of years ago now that was kind of on the topic of internet and they were gathering on this island, just a group of people who were movers and shakers kind of within social media and, and within kind of the, the, the internets or web 2.0. And, and I remember that there was this kind of sense of optimism that just this like free flow of information and, and the ability for people to connect that this is going to solve our, our problems. And I, I, I saw people talking about it like it was God in a sense, like it was gonna, yeah, just, just fix everything. And, and I, I remember just thinking that I don't think it really works that way. I just think that at the end of the day, we're still like humans. We still have our like greed and, and, and our pride and, and all, all these things that will still kind of have some part of, I mean, some part to play in, in kind of defining these systems and so on. And of course, I think we've seen over the last number of years, we, we've seen, of course, the negative outcome of some of these things that seem to be so incredibly positive. So what's, what's your perspective on that? Are we sometimes just too naive when we, we, when we look at organizations and when we look at the world? As I said, in the 90s, there was this, this uh, naivety everywhere. And I remember when I wrote my PhD, and I guess somewhere in my PhD, I must have written this also, that we were convinced that the internet would be the tool to implement a kind of direct democracy. So we looked at this as 
yes, as a kind of arena for the exchange of arguments, of deliberation, in the kind of discourse ethics style of Jürgen Habermas, the philosopher. And, and now we see what it does. It does increase polarization. It becomes a place to make money. So it, all these hopes of the 90s were disenchanted. But what I also have to, to say is that we are in a time where new information technology changes the world in a disruptive way. And that's not the first time that this happened in human history. We had the invention of the uh, writing by the Greek, the Greek alphabet. We had the book print in the Middle Ages. And in any of those times when some disruptive new technologies change the way we communicate, um, everything is becoming upside down. That means all kind of irrationalities spread as well. Um, but it also means that we lose something and we win something. What it is we will win, we don't know yet. Uh, but we see what we lose. Um, it's the same for the, the ancient Greek. Plato warned against writing because he said people will lose to learn by heart. And we will lose our morality because this is how we, yeah, we, we train morality to the youth, by learning by heart. And he was right. People today cannot learn by heart as they could but we gained something else through writing at that time. We gained the ability to think in abstract constructs. So all these discussions on what is freedom, what is democracy, what is, what is the human being, they came up after writing was invented. And similar things happened in the Middle Ages. So whenever there is a new information technology, disruption accelerates, and we are at the beginning of that phase. So we just see the dark side of it. What might be the good side is probably in a few generations, younger people will have the ability to connect between all these myriads of information that in which we drown, we have the perception we drown in it, they might see patterns where we don't yet. So this is probably a new skill that will emerge. But we'll lose something. We lose something. That is so fascinating. And, and you write in your LinkedIn bio that you're sometimes cynical, always hopeful. And I'm, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there are so many reasons to become a bit cynical. And of course, we, we've talked a bit about them, but what, what makes you the most hopeful right now? What makes me hopeful is taking a historical perspective to read, as I described right now, what happened in previous phases of high-speed change and to see that we are not the first experiencing certain things like great disorientation, like fear, like the, the idea that the end is near. There's a, there are wonderful books written on this idea, the end is near. Um, and people were always convinced at one point in, in, in history, now the end is really near, we're doomed. And we have that again today, driven by the ecological crisis. And guess what? Uh, it always continued after the end was near. And, and we turned this apocalyptic atmosphere into something new. So a new narrative started after an old one collapsed. And we are in that in-between phase, which Antonio Gramsci, the, the uh, philosopher, once called interregnum. So one narrative collapses, the new one is not yet there. And in that intermediate state, there is insecurity and fear and all kinds of irrationalities. And that makes me uh, positive about the future. So despite all these fake news and, and uh, flat earthers and, and polarization, um, something new and better will emerge. I'm thinking about, I, I think his name is Ivan Illich, who wrote about that, that if you want to change the world, you have to, to tell a new story and a story that kind of encapsulates the, 
our the history the, the the past the present and the future so so we're we're as you see it a part of the kind of the recreation or, or we are like moving into a new story but we don't necessarily know what that story will look like exactly and that and that means we have to move forward have to make decisions and build that narrative as we go along not from scratch there is normally all the material lying around we just have to pick it up and, and do it in the right moment but it's true we we always have a narrative that dominates how people see the world make sense in it and and value things or not and that is creating uncertainty if this material of how we evaluate the world suddenly does not exist anymore. The philosopher Jonathan Lear has written a wonderful book called Radical Hope. And it's about this question, what happens if a civilization collapses and your entire meaning-making system is no longer useful? How do you go on? And that is what we have to learn, how to go on with hope in times where what we liked and loved and did doesn't work anymore. Wow, that's that's so so interesting, and I, I'm just thinking there's so so much we could talk about around that and and about this new narrative, and I, I think that also connects to to organizations where where I think that organizations also go through different stages. Of course, generally, if we, if we look at like what is the purpose of business, what is the purpose of organizations in the public sector, what are we really here to? to do and where I'm also thinking that we've had aspects of that narrative that has been incredibly unhelpful and that uh, that that has kind of driven us to this image or, or of, of what success looks like that we're running after that that we're seeing maybe piece by piece that it's not really working it's not really giving giving the outcomes that we were hoping for do you do you see that also in terms of as we look at organizations Absolutely. I think that this narrative that is collapsing right now is one that shaped the decision-making in the organizations that we see today. So let me give you a few elements of that narrative. We have believed over the last decades um, that humans are egoistic, that they maximize their own interest, that we cannot trust each other. I mean, this is something that goes deep back into European history, starting with the um, original sin interpretation by the Christians. It was secularized by uh, philosophers like Hobbes. It ended up with Darwin and, the, and, and finally with the um, Richard Dawkins idea of the egoistic gene. So everything is egoism. And we have to design a world based on that, around egoists. That's one thing. Then we have been told that markets regulate themselves, that they are um, the best instrument um, to create efficient transactions, welfare. Um, we have been uh, told that governments are a problem, that regulation is bad. We have believed that consumption makes us happy, um, that growth is eternally possible, and that you have to be an aggressive person to survive in that world because our human default is competition, not cooperation. Now, if you look into companies, that's exactly what we put into practice. Um, and it all can be summarized in this idea of shareholder value maximization, where you justify greed by saying, well, greed is translated by the market into welfare for everyone. So greed is good. Um, be greedy as a person. And the best human right to protect is property rights. So it's all a story um, for which there is not much more evidence than for any other story that was told over the last 2000 years um, and of which we know. So that story collapses because of all these side effects. Consumption doesn't make us happy. We learn from, from uh, 
research in psychology now and in biology that we are not just egoists. We are a lot of different things. We are fair. We have altruistic um, desires. We, we are many things. But if you design a system around just one feature of human beings, you, you get what you promote. So the question now is, where do we go? What else can we be as human beings? And how do we use that? For instance, this ability to cooperate, this perception of fairness, to rewrite the story of economic activities. And we are at that point because the side effects of how we consumed and produced are now catching up in a way that we see that's no longer possible. The ecological crisis is, is at a point where the naive belief we had, it's about future generations' problems. It's gone. It's our problems. I start my teaching normally with, when I talk about sustainability, uh, by just showing a few insights from recent papers published in Nature and Science. One of them being, for instance, a paper that says 80% uh, of the insects have disappeared in Germany in just 10 years. And there are many studies like this. So on the average, 75% of the insects are gone recently. No insects, no humans. So we have to change the way we organize the economy. I'm thinking from the perspective of, of ethics and, and as an ethics professor. And, and just so, so when we think about humans, and I'm, I'm thinking that this is one of those kind of areas where it's so hard to find a right kind of picture or right view that is really helpful because like in one one sense like like you say like the the, the kind of economic models have been built around that that people are that can be counted on to be self maximizers and of course we we've seen that that is not that is not at all the entire truth there are there are many other there and, and people are a lot more irrational than <laughs> what we might perhaps give them credit to be as well and i think that's also something that has been been shown in in research that we're not rational maximizers but but anyway but i'm, I, I'm just thinking from the perspective of that that we can be both altruistic and greedy that 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 we have both both of those capacities in the, in that sense. How, how how can we look at that from a perspective in terms of how we uh, like organize and and build organizations that kind of uh, create space for that complexity of what it means to be a, a human being that both in 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 the sense like kind of encourages the virtues and protects against the vices or yeah. I mean, let me start by, by what you just said about rational decision-making, because that is exactly the point. You see, we, we, we are not all the time making rational decisions. And I would say we, most of the time we are not making rational decisions in the sense that we sit down and, and look at arguments and, and weigh them and, and decide what's in for me, what's in risk. So neither the ethical nor the unethical decisions typically are made consciously because they are coming from habits, from routines, um, that we have developed in groups over time. So they are unconscious decisions. And that is true for both, for moral and immoral decisions. What we have routinized is just partly the wrong ideas about the world, the wrong ideas about what does it mean, for instance, to be a good manager. A good manager in an organization is the one who is aggressive, who is pushy, who is taking the risk, and who is, who is just going for it. Um, which also might mean abusing people, harassing them, motivating them to the point where they break, burning them out. Um, we have learned that this is the right role model because the leaders we see succeeding very often are like that. And they succeed for a while. 
until um, at one point the system breaks down or the people collapse. Um, as long as new people come in and as long as the, the system is successful, uh, there's no crisis moment, this might work. Um, but it comes with a human price. So what we have to get into the system is a different unconsciousness about what it means to be a good leader. How do we get there? Well, we have to first bring to the consciousness that there's something wrong. And what I do very often is when I go into companies to train um, them on ethics, I show them the result of that kind of thinking by, by analyzing corporate scandals, which typically have all the elements of this kind of toxic, testosterone-driven male type of uh, leadership that from the top down creates a situation which the others just break the rules because they either see no other way out or they have the wrong role models. Um, and that is to change. So we have to, to change the role models at the top. You can be a caring leader, pretty much more the female type of leading, the one who is benevolent, and you can be successful nonetheless. Certain humbleness is what we might need as a dose into leadership. And I think one of the examples of the, the kind of negative aspects of that leadership that you were just talking about that, that really spoke to me that you've done a lot of research on is the example of France Telecom. And uh, it, it just struck me as something because it, it, is, it had such incredibly negative consequences. And I mean, it cost people their lives because they experienced a suicide wave at the company. And could you share a little bit of, of that story and, and your, your kind of, yeah, as, as you've been researching it? Ross Telecom story is one that I also find very fascinating because it, it shows how you can push good managers or let's say average managers into very destructive forms of behavior. In the 1990s, um, until the 1990s, the European telecommunication market was basically managed by state-owned companies. That was France Telecom in France, British Telecom in England, Deutsche Telekom in Germany, and so on. These were state-owned businesses. And in most of these countries, in state-owned businesses, the people who work there are civil servants, and they cannot be fired. Now, in 1999, the European Union decides to deregulate the telecommunication market to turn this into a real market. And they privatized, the, the, the governments privatized these state-owned businesses. And also France Telecom became a, a, a stock-based business at one point. Now, the challenge they had, and that was clear in 2005 when a new CEO took over, Didier Lombard, the challenge they had was they had way too many employees and the wrong employees because they wanted to be a, a leader in Europe in this new market of internet, uh, mobile uh, telephone uh, technology, and so on. And what they had was thousands of engineers who often in their 50s um, had as their main job to repair telephones in households, the landlines. Um, and they, they didn't need these guys anymore. Now, until 2006, because of a, of a, of a bargaining um, agreement with the unions, the French government had decided that these engineers could leave early, uh, so to retire early. This was running out in 2006. And when Didier Lombard arrived, he had high pressure to perform. Um, why? Well, um, he had, with not he, his predecessors had bought a lot of companies in Europe at the wrong timing. So they bought Orange in England and a lot of other telecommunication companies before the collapse of the new economy. And suddenly, 
their market share had gone to literally zero. Their, 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 their stock value, sorry. And he had to perform. He had to show to the um, financial markets that he would turn around this company and make it a leader in Europe. And he realized he had 22,000 too many people on board whom he didn't need. So how do you get rid of people if you cannot fire them? He had an idea. His idea was to train his top 5,000 managers in a um, training center they created in psychological warfare. And the idea was, well, if we might make the life of those people we want to get rid of tough, unpleasant, they will take the offer of taking some financial uh, package and leaving the company or taking a job in another state-owned uh, uh, entity. So they, they train these 5,000 people in how to make life difficult for employees. The, the bonus was connected 50% to how many people leave your unit, your team, because of, uh, of this, uh, this deal. And then these people started to make life difficult for employees. For instance, to give you uh, just a few ideas, um, you could not fire those engineers, but you could move them somewhere else. So you could decide that you take someone who is in Paris and move that person into an office far away from Paris so that they have to move with their family uh, to, to pick up the new job. So these people go somewhere in the province. They arrive at the office and they're told to sit in an office and wait until they receive instructions. And they sit in a room with just a chair. There's nothing else. No desk, no computer, no nothing. And they sit for a day, for a week, for a month, for six months, and nobody comes. They cannot, they cannot not come to work because then they give them a reason to fire them. So they have to sit there every day on this chair and wait. And the idea again was they will not like this, they will leave. Or um, you would tell someone on Friday evening that from the next Monday morning on, they would work in a, in a call center. So you're an engineer. Your, your job is to go into households and repair stuff. And you now are sitting in front of a computer. You don't receive a training. They shout at you if you take more than five minutes in a, in a, in a, in a call. Again, it's all ideas to make life difficult. So people left. And many left um, through suicide. So they had a wave of suicides from 2008 on. Uh, roughly 70 people killed themselves in four years. And 41 people um, tried suicide, uh, not succeeding. So more than 100 people, many of them on the compound of the organization, some in the uniform of France Telecom, others leaving letters behind referring to the company. So it's very clear that the link between these suicides and this strategy of, of the UCO um, was there. So you take normal managers, uh, you send them to a training, you tell them these are obstacles for our change process. We don't need them and they still uh, don't want to leave. Um, um, you have to do something, and they do something. And they probably do not even feel that this is a problem, what they're doing, because they know exactly that if they would not do it, they are part of the people who have to leave. When we look at the example of, of France Telecom, we see, of course, that this is a story that if there weren't the suicides, if it weren't these incredibly devastating stories, it might have been heralded like an example of a successful business transformation with the CEO standing on the, the big conference stages and talking about how he did it. And, and, and I'm just thinking about this aspect of outcome bias and how we, how, we, how we measure success and what we think that success looks like. Could you talk something 
about that aspect of the story. It makes me think about what Andy Fastow, the former CFO of Enron, uses to say when he talks about his own story. Enron was this company that was in the early 2000s perceived as the future of capitalism. So whatever they touched upon, they turned into gold until it all collapsed in a, in a big fraudulent scheme. And what he says is, is very interesting with regards to your question. He said, I was praised one day for something for which I was sent to prison another day. Um, so these high pressure contexts, you find them pretty much everywhere in big business. The pressure to reduce costs, uh, the pressure to deliver, um, to increase the share value, to tell a success story, even if you are stuck uh, in a crisis moment. So this pressure creates tremendous suffering. And that is something I discovered rather lately in my analysis of, of scandals, the suffering. There are people who have fear, who suffer, who get health issues because of the context in which they are. Toxic contexts drive both um, the suffering of people and the breaking of rules. Now, why does not any company having that kind of pressure turn into a scandal? Um, I often discuss the case of Amazon in my, in, my, in my classes because Amazon, and there are a lot of articles published by the New York Times about this, has a culture that is very similar to France Telecom. It's pressure, it's humiliation, it's kicking out low performers, it's, it's telling each other who is a good and who is a bad person in terms of performance every day. So this total observation now with uh, AI and, and, and uh, digitalization even um, around the clock in a way, it breaks people and they have a high rate of burnout. Uh, why does it work? Well, for, for each person burning out, there's someone new coming because it's cool to work for Amazon for a while with a CV. And why don't they not have a scandal? There's one thing that all the big scandals have in common, in my view. It is that these cultures make people go beyond what's legal under one circumstance, under one condition. That is, there's a crisis moment. Something doesn't work anymore. They are stuck. Volkswagen could not develop that filter, but they needed this desperately to enter the US market. Boeing could not compete with this new airplane of Airbus, but they desperately needed a new airplane. Uh, so they, they quickly created a new engine that didn't work. So the, the story of France Telecom we discussed already, Wells Fargo, a story of thousands of salespeople committing fraud on customers because they were fired if they didn't succeed to, to achieve their sales goals per day. So any big scandal has that crisis moment. We are stuck with our success, but we cannot say that we are stuck because if I go to my superior and say, I can't do that, something terrible will happen. I must find a way. And that is the moment where the system cracks and becomes probably illegal. And Amazon did not have that moment because they are running from one success to another. But they will have that moment sooner or later. Yeah, and I think just like you say that, that I mean, at one point, it, it will come. And, and I think a, a model that, that you've developed that I've found incredibly helpful in thinking about decision making because I think so many times we, we think that we we want to make ethical decisions, we want to make the right decisions and yet we, we fail to do so and and of course often it's it's not just about me and myself but it's it's about the context that has been created and then you use the picture of thinking about ethical tunnel vision. Could you talk a little bit about what that 
model looks like and, and how, how it works. A few, a few years ago, maybe a decade ago, there was a new CEO coming into Boeing. Stone Cyber was his name, and he came from General Electrics. What he had learned there is how to maximize shareholder value. And the way they did it there, Jack Welch, he was in his team, the way they did it was they just rewarded the best 10% and they kicked out the lowest 10% of people. Um, they celebrated the top 10% of brands and they sold the lowest 20% performers in a ruthless way. He came to Boeing and he brought this culture and he gave an interview where he said, well, this is an engineering company, but shareholders are not interested in engineering. They want to make money. So we have to change something. And he changed something. So he, he changed the incentive schemes in that company in a way that he said, well, from now on, um, what counts is speed and cost reduction. So you have to produce these airplanes faster and cheaper. And that is what they did, fast and cheap production. Now, why they, did they not ring a bell and said, but what about safety? The 737, the one that crashed uh, twice in this new version, was the safest airplane ever built. So if you think you have 180% safety, you can reduce this maybe to 160. It's still good and good enough, better than the others in your perception, and you can focus on something else. You focus on what gets rewarded, which is speed and cost. They were firing entire teams for not reducing cost fast enough. What you do if you give people a one-dimensional goal is you create that tunnel vision. They focus on exactly that, and left and right, whatever happens, they cannot see this anymore because they pressure to look just at these two things is overwhelming. And that is something very natural because our brain is built or has um, over the uh, evolutionary development created um, a specialization in being fast and efficient. If you hunt a mammoth 60,000 years ago, you have to be fast and efficient. You cannot think about irrelevant elements of information around you that you don't need in that moment. Because if you think, overthink it, you will be killed yourself. You must focus. Focusing makes us fast, but focusing makes us blind for things we, we think are not relevant at that very moment. So it's a tunnel vision in the sense that left and right, everything becomes dark. Francis Bacon, the philosopher, once said, well, if you, if you um, hold the candle into one corner, you darken the rest of the room. And that's what we see when companies focus too much on one or two KPIs. Yeah, so, and, and, and when I'm thinking about the France Telecom example, so, I mean, it, it, it hits, it's very close to home for me because I've, I've had, very close to me personally, I've, I've had uh, experiences of attempted suicide because connected to, to unhealthy culture, unhealthy leadership, and, and, and just having been a part of that and seeing the ramifications of that, of course, when you... When you look at it afterwards and you look at it with the with some distance and benefit of hindsight it's so easy to think i mean how in the world could you or anyone allow something like this to happen how in the world could you be a part of a culture that was this unhealthy how in the world could you accept certain types of of rewards or or, or certain types of, of pressures and I'm thinking about the France Telecom example where we have these 5,000 managers and, and just that, I mean, even though they might not have experienced somebody in their team committing suicide there, they must have seen a lot of examples of people really suffering from, from, from the treatment. And, and I'm just thinking about that, that type of blindness, that type of blindness that, that can kind of 
impact 5,000 people within a company who become blind to and who kind of just push through an agenda because of the incentive systems? What, what more kind of contributes to that type of ethical blindness? And, and how can we in our organizations kind of think about how we build to try to protect against that? I think there are many, many possible answers to that. One is that you don't want to be on the side of the victim. But you don't want to be one of those losers who are targeted to leave because they're an obstacle and they're not the future of the company. You want to be the future. So what shocked me most was this lack of solidarity that you could see in the company, that, that even in teams, people laughed about the ones who were targeted, who were the low performers, because the, the results of everyone in the team was put on a, on a table every morning. And the ones who were at the, at the bottom of this table of performance, the others laughed about them. It was clear they were the target. If they were crying in their office, the others just took their laptop and left the room. Um, you don't want to be seen with them. You don't want to be associated with the losers. You are the winner. That's one thing. You could also ask, why do you, as a leader, not see that coming? Well, you, f first of all, you don't have the overview of what's happening in the entire company. And a lot of people inside Francilcom have said that they saw what was going on only after the news picked up the first or, or one, the first time the news picked up a case of suicide, then they realized something is, is happening. So everyone knows a little bit, a fragment, no one has the total view of, of the story. And what you do in your own view as a manager is just, yeah, your normal job. You do use the normal toolbox of a manager. You just overstretch the use of it a little bit. But that overstretching of it is, is just not visible to you because you think it's still okay. I can go one step further, a little bit of more pressure, and they work a bit harder. But the moment where they break, you don't see. You don't see it coming. It's always 5 to 12. Wow. And we, you, you could add the question of why did the victims not escape, not leave? Why did they endure that suffering? And, and what you see here in this case, and in a lot of suicides linked to companies, is that they perceive themselves as totally useless. They're told you're an obstacle. They have a meeting every week with their superior asking them, why don't you leave? We don't need you. You're an obstacle. You cost money. There are options out there. We showed you some job offers. Why didn't you take one of them? So if you get the constant message, you are nobody. Um, you are useless. You are crap. Then you start to believe that. When we disagree with a group or when we are in a way different from a group, we tend to look for the mistake in ourselves. I am the problem not the others, not the way they treat me. I am the problem. And if I am the problem, um, that can be so fundamental that, well, I will be a problem elsewhere as well. So I have no option. They're killing me. All the energy of people being suffering in these situations, all the energy is sucked up by surviving the moment. You don't have any energy left to think about other options. And if you look in, 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 in any kind of these scandals, there's one type of person that speaks up, that says, stop. Um, one thing they most of the time have in common, and that is they have options in life. They do not see themselves as dependent from that one very company, that one job. Um, they have options in life. Um, they can imagine doing something else, or they have other sources of energy than the work. And that's why the philosopher Hegel once wrote, the servant of two masters is a free person. Because if I have two masters, they give me contradictory orders, I'm free. 
if you have just your job and nothing else in your life, you have one master. If that master abuses you, yeah, then you don't know what to do. You endure it. And I'm thinking about that last kind of piece of the of, of your example here, that in one sense, I mean, as we as we build organizations, we want people to be to be in that sense, like committed to to the mission, to the vision and and be a part of the culture. And then at the same time, as we are wanting to build more ethical organizations, one of the most important aspects of that is to have people who are actually able to speak out, people who are able to voice their concerns. And of course, there's so many different aspects of that. There's the aspect of do we have a leadership that encourages and celebrates that or or that frowns on that, which which too many times is the case. But I think another aspect is exactly what you pointed at at the end, that do we have people that are so kind of their whole life is is kind of revolving around this job or this organization or this mission and and that we kind of contributed to that that they don't have a position to stand from where they're actually able to say this is wrong and of course that 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 might be i mean financial reliance that, that that this is your source of income and you have nothing else to do but if we think apart from that the kind of part that we as companies contribute to in the way that we kind of engage people around the mission. Could you could you speak to that again? I think it's I think it is the tensions between something that 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 has a good in a sense that's something we want to do and then the on on the other hand something that we need to protect against. A mission or a very strong corporate culture can have two different effects. It can promote ethics, but it can also promote the opposite of ethics. Um, because you see that also organizations that have a very strong mission can have scandals. Take the Oxfam scandal. So Oxfam, uh, the um, NGO was involved in, in uh, abuse of, of, of sexual abuse of children. So the um, aid workers in Haiti were systematically involved in this, supported by the local management, um, having orgies um, in their private houses with, uh, with young people. So they... They are the good guys, theoretically. They should be the ones who, whom we celebrate. And they see themselves as the good guys. Um, similar in pharma industry, they see themselves as the good guys. We bring health, we bring solutions, we help people to reduce suffering. And if you see yourself as the good guy, it means you might allow yourself some transgressions because as a good guy, you are entitled to do that. And you are anyway the good guy, so you will not go down the towards the dark side because you're protected as the good guy. So hubris or what is called moral licensing. So the idea I can allow myself to do certain things because I do so much good. I can bribe the doctor because I want the patients to get this drug to improve their health situation. So I can rationalize a lot of bad things because I have a strong ethics. So in the moment where ethics is taken to form a cult, a powerful totalitarian culture of being the good guys, it can have exactly the same effect as the absence of ethics. And that's why Aristotle always said, the real thing is the means between two extremes. Um, what we need is not totalitarian ethics. What we need is organizations that allow people to broadly frame what they do and broadly perceive what they do and make informed decisions and having the right and the ability to th think critically 
and to raise critical points to their superiors. And I'm thinking that it also, and I mean, I've talked a lot about that on this podcast, just this, I think that the danger of, of thinking that we're, or protecting the image of being the good and ethical organization. And in the last, or in an earlier episode, I, I talked to, to Bob Langert and, and just about what, what he was doing at, at McDonald's at the time when, when they started actually inviting the critics in, instead of just trying to kind of push back against any allegations against the company. And, and I'm, I'm just thinking how important that self-image is and, and kind of what, what, it, what is the story that we create around our organization. And I think if we think about the France Telecom example and Oxfam example, I think many of our listeners, whether leaders or HR or ethics professionals, or, might think that, I mean, we're not France Telecom and we're not Oxfam, and you're probably not, but France Telecom and Oxfam didn't think that they were France Telecom and Oxfam. I mean, from in that perspective either before these things actually happened and came to the surface. So I'm thinking as to, to our audience, what are some of the things that you uh, think are important in terms of thinking about creating a culture and a context that does encourage more ethical behavior? We often think is exactly what you said, that we are not concerned, not affected by what's going on elsewhere. We are not like them. We are better. It's called a moral superiority bias. We believe we are above the average moral. Any one of us believes that. You can even, and there's research on that, you can even ask people in prison and they would also say we are above the average moral as individuals. Um, so we, we totally underestimate this impact of context on our behavior. Um, we think we will not do this, what these guys have done in these kind of organizations because they are bad apples. So we attribute it to their character. We are the good ones. We don't have these issues in our character, so it will not happen to us. For me, it's always interesting to see who invites me, uh, which company invites me to, to do a training with their leaders. And most of the time, it's companies that paid at least a billion in fine. Because the ones who have no scandal will believe, well, we don't do these things. We don't need ethics. Uh, why would I waste time for an ethics training? I have so much to do. Um, those who open up are the ones who paid the billion. So doing this before the scandal comes can save a lot of money. And what I think has to be, has to be done in ethics training is not so much talking about ethics and talking about uh, values and philosophy. It's basic psychology is transmitting that message that under certain circumstances, I could be the next bad apple, even though I'm a good person. And what are these forces that drive me and, and my organization into that direction? How can I see the red flags early on? And how can I not become someone who pushes others as a leader into that kind of high pressure situation? That is so incredibly helpful. So on this podcast, we, we talk about creating a culture of, of purpose, integrity, and, and trust. And I wanted to ask you, what signifies to you a culture of purpose and integrity? Purpose is something that is uh, in fashion right now. All companies try to define a purpose. I think what a purpose means in that moment right now is that we have realized that we have to disrupt corporations, that we cannot go on the way we produce and consume so far. The planet is not taking it anymore. And that means uh, that we have to go into what has been called moonshot projects. So defining radically different vision of who we are. Take the example of Starbucks, the coffee producer. They announced they want to become water positive. That means they want to produce more fresh water 
than they take out of nature. They currently, as any coffee producer, need 25,000 liters of water per kilo of coffee in, along the total supply chain. 25,000 liters of water. How do you turn this into a producer of fresh water? They have no clue. But that's what a moonshot project is about. Um, you have to figure it out as you go along. You just have to credibly show you are disrupting what you have done so far because you want to become a regenerative company. That is one element of this new direction. The other one is the ethics inside and the promotion of diversity. These three things have to go together if you really want to become an actor who takes sustainability and ethics seriously. Promote ethics internally, become a diverse actor, and define who you are in a, in a way that you do not take from nature anymore, but you give to nature. Thank you so much for that definition. So finally, Guido, how can people connect with you and, and follow your work? They can connect on LinkedIn. And uh, as they will see there, I post a lot of stuff pretty much in the direction we just discussed here. And I'm always happy to have discussions there. They are sometimes heated, but that's the idea. So definitely encourage you to follow Guido on, on LinkedIn, connect with him and, and follow his his coming book, I, I hope, is, is coming out soon, so, so you can dig into that as well. But thank you so much, Guido, for taking the time and, and for the important work that you do. Thank you, Tobias. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, it really means the world to us if you would share, rate, and review it on iTunes. We're super grateful for all the five-star reviews and generous comments that we've received so far. It really helps us take the message of purpose and integrity to a wider audience. And finally, don't forget to grab your free PDF on leadingtransformationalchange.com. See you in two weeks.